It was so frustrating. Just when you are ready to give, you feel the compelling urge to hoard. Along with hard to describe sensations in your arms and hands that keep you from being able to let go. It's called close fist syndrome or CFS. Close fist syndrome is the overwhelming urge to hold on to cash at all costs. This can lead to some very difficult situation, making normal, daily events a major obstacle. CFS can turn a bad situation into a nightmare. License and registration, please. My doctor said CFS is a recognized medical condition. And then he said something else. Generous. He said generous would help relieve those CFS symptoms that keep me from giving. He told me what to watch for, that generous may cause you to give more money away than is financially responsible, or to prematurely cash in your 401k. Tell your doctor if you experience these problems. Do not mix alcohol with generous, or you will lose the shirt off your back. Side effects can include bankruptcy, foreclosure, and living in a van down by the river. Most participants were not bothered enough to stop taking generous. Ask your doctor if generous can help you overcome CFS and get you giving again. The readings taken from Malachi, chapter 3, verses 6 uh, to 12, and you can find it on page 683 in the ESV Bibles in the little sleeve pockets behind the chairs. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole world, or the whole nation, of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby be put to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the God. If you have uh, spent the vast majority of your Sundays hanging around this popsicle stand for the past year or so, you may have noticed a pattern. Um, I don't do... A lot of sermons like three keys to a healthy marriage or how to reach the unreachable or finally the secret recipe for happiness in life. Not there's anything wrong with those and if I did do one of those I would dress up like uh, Bobby Flay from the Food Network. Huh? Instead you may have noticed that I usually take a book or significant portion of a book of the Bible and preach through it. I want to share with you briefly why I do that. I think it's important for this morning. First, God has sovereignly set up his word to read like this. And not like one of those uh, Bible promise books. I love those things. We actually have one, you know, hanging around on the coffee table, you know. What to do when you're anxious. Those are great. But God has not set up his word that way. Instead, we know that it was studied and read by those in the New Testament through books. For instance, the book of Hebrews we know is a sermon. It says at the end of it, it's a word of exhortation. And we know that the letter to the church at Coloss, or the Colossians, 
was then given to other churches, the church of Laodicea, churches of Laodicea, and to be read before everybody. That's how they went through the word. Secondly, uh, we preach through a book. I think it gives everyone a visible example as to how they can also read, understand, and apply God's Word just by reading through it. Yes, even without a workbook, devotional, or one of those e-verses e of the day, right? We get to our inbox. Nothing wrong with those things. But we can actually read through God's Word. Not that it's easy. It's very difficult sometimes to understand. But when we only get little verses here and there, when that's our only diet... It's our only meal. We miss the context, the bigger picture, the themes, the patterns that God is wanting to show us of what he does in his people's lives. It also, though, and this is most important for this morning, going through a book forces us as a church body to grapple with hard passages and hard topics. And it forces me, as a pastor, to preach them. Now believe me, uh, I know that tithing slash giving is like the leper of Christian sermons. Alright? And you don't want to see it coming. Right? Unclean! Unclean! <laughs> it, right? If faith, hope, and love are the holy trinity of preaching topics, uplifting sermon topics, and the greatest of these is love, then giving, hell, probably divorce is the unholy trinity of preaching. And the worstest of these things is giving. Right? Because as we know, money even contributes to people going to that place down there, as well as people's marriages falling apart. Now I realize that some of you may have even invited a friend this morning, and so you have won the anti-lottery. All right? You have basically, the military draft lottery this morning. You're like, what are the chances? I bring them and because talk about giving. Gosh. But, this is what happens. When you go through a book of the Bible, voila, it shows up. Well, this is the book of Malachi, which mostly consists of people's questions to God, and God responding and answering to them in turn. And we're in the middle of this, these disputes. We, there's this Disputes going on throughout this book, and we're in our fourth dispute, which is over what is fair and just. The people are thinking God's not being fair, so they're going to talk to him about it. And the question for this morning, or really two questions, are buried in verses 8 through 9. Keep your Bibles open this morning. We're going to need them. This is a tough passage. 8 and 9, return to me, God says. And they basically say, okay, well, how are we going to return? And God says, well, let's see how you've offended me. You have robbed me blind. And they ask, well, how have we robbed you? Now, are God's people genuinely confused as to how they need to repair the relationship with him and what they've, what they've done wrong? Not so much. All right. Basically, they're playing coy with God. As one commentator put it, it's sort of this half-hearted, defensive protest of innocence. What do you mean we need to return? We haven't done anything wrong, right? Even though we've been through three and a half chapters of this book, and we know that God's people have done wrong, sometimes it feels to a person that they've done their part. They've made the corrections. They've done enough. And we can relate to this, right? Lord, I've done my part. All right? We're good. 
That part may be quiet, having a quiet time, it might be attending church, it could be doing a kind deed or favor for someone in your workplace, it could be spending quality time with your kids. Lord, I've made my corrections, I've done my part. Well, the truth is, as someone is growing in Christ, they actually see their sin more, not less. They see their need for God's grace and forgiveness more because of their sin, not, not less. But even still, during such times when we don't really see anything, we might ask, where do I look when it feels like I haven't done anything wrong? And that sort of summarizes the questions of God's people and our question for this morning. Where do I look when I really haven't done anything wrong? Or at least it seems that way. And God says, look at your checkbook. The quickest way to return your heart to me is by giving to me. This morning's sermon, in a nutshell, if I can summarize it for us in a nutshell, it's this. Be generous. This, by the way, I've tried to set a record for the shortest, in a nutshell, I've ever had in this church. Uh, The shortest main point. I thought about making it shorter, just say, give. But then, as I wrote that down, I felt like a late night televangelist, you know, selling vials of holy oil. That, that, that didn't feel quite right. Be generous. So this morning, I want to give you three reasons to be generous. Three reasons from this passage to be generous. And then next week, we're going to take a broader picture, a broader look at what um, the entire Bible tends to say about giving and applying it to our lives. Because I know what will bring you back next week. That's a sermon on giving, right? One more week. One more week. Come on. One more week. One more week. Some of you joined in. Thank you. Well, let's get this party started. Reason number one. Reason number one to be generous because God is stubbornly generous with us. Verses 6 through 9, we hear this language of a covenant God. I'm going to remind us briefly about covenants. To learn much more about it, listen to a sermon a few weeks ago online. But God relates to his people through covenants. A covenant is a contract, but it's more than signing on a dotted line. It was always in tender love. It was celebratory. Entering into a relationship with people. But at the same token, it was more than a love song. It was more than mere words or signs of affection. It involved self-sacrifice, commitment, a giving of oneself. And so we hear this language of a covenant here in these first few verses of our passage this morning. I, the Lord, do not change. How does he not change? How does he not deviate? He does not deviate from his covenant. He does not deviate from fulfilling it. He talks about statutes in verse 7. These are the obligations of the Mosaic Covenant. What people are supposed to do in response to God's protection of them. And then when he talks about tithes and contributions, that's a specific obligation that the people were to fulfill from their end of the covenant. Verse 7, he talks about returning, shuv. This Hebrew word, shuv, was the word prophets continually used to call people back to the covenant when they had disobeyed him previously. Finally, curse in verse 9. Curses were the consequences for not living up to their end of the covenant. But God remains with his people, with his people, because he is faithful to his covenant. He remains with them. Now you might hear me say that and think, well, wait a minute. What's the stuff about you are cursed with a curse? 
doesn't sound like God is exactly with them. But actually, this is greater proof that he has not left them. But he remains faithful to his covenant. He remains faithful to dole out the discipline of the covenant. The punishments, the official punishments of the covenant. There were these horrid ten Ds, the curses of a covenant. I mentioned them a few weeks ago. And likely what we have here is dearth. A fancy word for a lack of stuff. But he holds back another D, death. He holds back that. Even though his people, frankly, deserve it for their persistent rebellion in his face, he holds it back. That's why he says, I don't change. That is why you are not, what? Consumed. God is downright stubborn in his generosity. I want to point out something to you in verse 6. Where for the first time since the opening verses of Malachi, God calls Judah, Jacob. He calls them Jacob. Why here? Why does he call them Jacob? Well, it's interesting. The word Rob in Hebrew has the same root letters as Jacob. Basically the same consonants, if you will, as Jacob. So when he says in verse 9, you are robbing me, it's a play on words. He's saying, you are Jacobing me. Right? It's so ingrained for you to do this. It's part of your very nature. But even though, even though taking from me has become part of who you are, I won't change. I won't give up on you. God, he is like a man who refuses to let someone else pay for the bill, even though he's ordered the salad and they've ordered the lobster thermidor. And they never thank him for the dinner. He still pays and pays and pays. People take and take and take. When you live in Cayman, you are rich. Right? Whether you were born here or not born here, there's food on your table. And in all likelihood, you drove here. You are rich compared to this world's standards. You know that, right? Do not be deceived about stuff. Do not be deceived about stuff. James 1.17 says this, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. You hear the connection there? To Malachi, he does not change. Therefore, you're not consumed. He does not change, so I continue to give perfect gifts. God is saying, he is totally reliable to be a giver. But we don't really believe this. If I'm honest with myself, my heart of hearts, deep down, I, I struggle to believe this. Which is why James adds, verse 16, Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every per- good and perfect gift comes from above. James knew and that in his next statement of truth, he would have to preface it by saying, don't be deceived. Our tendency, just as it was for the audience of James, is for us to subtly give self-credit for what we have, for what we produce, or just assume it's our God-given right to take what we earn. Have you ever notice when you use that phrase, have you ever used that phrase, God-given right? What's the emphasis always on? Right. I mean, I almost glossed when Amy wrote that down. 
on my notes, I'm a glossed over God-given. And that's the point. We've got to the point in our lives where God-given is not really a reality that we consider. And lest we think, well, I worked really hard for this. This is coming from the fruit of my labor. God says this in Deuteronomy 8, 18. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms His covenant, which He swore to your forefathers as it is today. He gives us the strength. He gives us the heartbeat. He gives us the air we breathe. He gives us the mind, the capacity to produce any wealth. Even that is a gift from Him. Friends, the picture of a man who gets it, who gets wealth, who gets money, comes in 1 Chronicles. It's from King David. King David has just given a significant amount of his treasures, significant amount of his treasures, to build a temple for God that he would never see in his lifetime. He would never see the fruit of his giving. And he says this in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, praying, Lord, who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have only given you what has initially come from your hand. David understands that he's just a steward. That the wealth that has come to him is just a boomerang. Coming to him, but going back to God. My children uh, received the idol in a box this past Christmas. Uh, you know what that is, right? It's a Nintendo Wii. I just call it the idol in a box right now. Uh, and I bought, personally bought for them uh, to, to go with this idol in a box a game called Mario Kart, which uh, up until two weeks ago, uh, Mason asks about every day. The first day I give him this game, or I give them this game, Mason and Gage both, I ask Mason, hey Mason, I think, uh, I think Dad's uh, going to play Mario Kart. Is that okay? No. It's like, whoa. <laughs> I tried to reason with him. Right? Now, you do realize I just gave you this game. I just gave it to you. I mean, the label is still on the package. It says, from Daddy. <laughs> you realize this? No. Now, those of us who are parents or if you have nieces and nephews, you've been there. Shun from partaking of your own gift. What do we do? Well, there's really not much you can do at that point. It's hard to, t- you know, you can say something briefly, maybe shake our heads, and kind of sigh and mutter, someday they'll learn. Do we? You think our Heavenly Father might be looking down, saying the same thing about us? Someday they'll learn. Reason number two to be generous. <laughs> okay. So that your pastors never aim to appease you. Verse 10, beginning of verse 10, says this, Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Why was it so important for God to have food in his pantry? Now, Malachi appeared, and by the way, it's so important because his priests ate in the pantry. I'll get to that in a moment. Malachi appeared either during or just after the time of a guy named, Mal- uh, sorry, a guy named Nehemiah who was a cupbearer turned leader of the Jewish people. So 
reading what went on in the book of Nehemiah helps us better understand what was going on in the book of Malachi. Now, Nehemiah also refers to the storehouse. He calls it a great chamber in Nehemiah 13. But he talks about an issue that went on during this time. I want to mention that. But the function of this chamber was to house ties of grain, wine, and oil, which was allocated to the priests and the temple staff. Now, you may remember, you may know this, you may not, the Levites, the priests, okay? They were one of 12 tribes, and they were the only tribe in Israel that God didn't give a big old chunk of land. Why? Because God would provide through his people, through the sacrifices, through the offerings that they would bring. And so they, you know, they ate the offerings. Similar to today, Galatians 6.6, 6, Paul says this, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. I realize this is self-serving, but I don't know what to say. It's, it's here. All right? Nehemiah shares, however, that the system had become corrupted. With the results that the Levites and, and the, the, the staff, the singers, had to go wander in the fields to scour for food supplies. It's no wonder then why priests, remember in Malachi, were so tempted to accept offerings in any condition. Even if they weren't pure, even if they were blemished, even if they were tainted. Remember in chapter 1, they accepted them. The priests would look the under other way during worship. People would bring their sacrifices, and even though they, they were the sloppy seconds, the priests would kind of look the other way. They wanted to eat something. And that's not to excuse the priests. I mean, they still could have trusted the Lord. I mean, I, and I believe, truly, God would have provided for them. But you understand why they'd accept anything. No one wants to leave their family at seven at night to go rummage in the fields for food. The application today becomes clear. When God's people persistently fail to show generosity, those whom he has chosen as under-shepherds will be tempted to accept anything. Now, I'm thankful that I'm not personally in this situation. I mentioned before, uh, we're incredibly generous in this church. But this is a temptation for many pastors who are squeezed by the people in their church. Not by all people, but certain people, they're squeezed with regard to money. It's sort of an undercurrent in certain churches where everyone kind of knows, especially on leadership teams or, or on elder boards or, or, or you know, pastors, they know, oh, if that person leaves the church, we're in trouble. Their wallet goes with them. And vice versa. Sometimes a person is coming enamored with their money. It's a source of power. And they know, honey, I don't think he'll do that. He knows if he offends us, we'll leave. And with us is our money. This has is a sad because it's corrupted so many churches, friends. You don't want your preacher spewing out of his mouth nothing but cotton candy. All right? He better tell me what I want to hear. You don't want that. Because you know what? Too many soft words create hard hearts. And sometimes we need hard words to create soft hearts. You don't want your preacher to aim to appease you. Reason number three. It's important to be generous. For yourself. Verses 10 through 12. Specifically, for your faith and for your long-term investment portfolio. First of all, for your faith. There's something radically off about this passage, okay? 
compared to the rest of the Bible, something radically off. And it's not the fact that God is talking about money. Jesus actually talks about money more than heaven and hell combined. Do you know that? What's a little off here is in verse 10. He says, put me to the test. Or if you're reading the NIV, which is a little more accurate here, because it's in the imperative, test me. Test me. A command to his people to test. And why is this strange? Well, God will test people. But God elsewhere consistently forbids that people test God. This is a huge no-no. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And you may also know when Jesus goes out of the desert, where he's 40 days and he's tempted by Satan, one of the things he says to Satan to rebuke him, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But here, and only here, he actually implores that his people put him to the test. This is a radical statement. Why does he do this? Why? Because when he normally would ask that his people trust him, they've, they've strayed so far from trusting God that he resorts to testing. In other words, he wants them to test that they may trust. He wants to sh- kind of shock their system. His people don't lack trust or faith. They just put their faith in something else. In this case, money and possessions. So he's saying, okay, test me. Test me with just the bare minimum of what you trust the most. How will God show his trustworthiness? We see here in in the remaining passage, starting in verse 10. Look. I will open the windows of heaven for you, pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed. You will be a land of delight. How are these verses often used? Unfortunately, in in a lot of Christian history, and even nowadays, they're often used as a magical formula to get God to make you rich. This strain of teaching is rampant, friends. We need to be aware of it. It's it's rampant, especially on television. And it subtly makes God, notice, the means to wealth and security. I want to give you one minister's quote regarding these verses. He said this, In tithing, you are laying the foundation for financial security and abundance in this life. You're establishing deposits with God, which can be used whenever you need them. Friends, that isn't covenant with God. It's magic. The idea that if you say some spell, if you do something, it makes God do something to you or for you. The mistake in this line of thinking, there's two mistakes. Mistake number one is they miss the end of verse 10. Where God says, I'll pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Notice that. No more need. In other words, God gives for need, not for greed. Remember, you have priests scrambling around through fields for food. You have some sort of crop-destroying pest that he calls a devourer here. God will radically turn hearts and circumstances so that people have enough. Not SUVs and flat screens. The second mistake is it assumes that we're still under the old covenant. 
The idea that God will make you rich if you give. As soon as we're sowing to that old covenant. Now the blessings of the old covenant, basically summarized in Deuteronomy 28-32, are life, health, agricultural abundance. We see that here, right? Prosperity, respect. We see that here as well. You will be called a land of delight. Security. But with those blessings of the old covenant come the obligations. All those things we couldn't live up to until Jesus came and he gave us this new covenant. The blessings of which are forever forgiveness and knowing God personally. It says in Jeremiah 31 of the, old, of the new covenant, No longer will someone teach someone about me, but every person will know God. Every person from the least to the greatest will know me intimately, face to face. So what we can say is that by being generous, being generous will increase knowledge and intimacy with God by faith. Your faith in Him, your knowledge in Him, your intimacy will increase. We can say that. And that is an awesome blessing. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says two pretty huge things about money. He says, basically, you can use money to invest in a permanent bank account in heaven. And he also says, what you spend your excess cash on is what you give your heart to. It's what you'll give your heart to. You know, we often, I think, walk away, and I do this too. You know, I want to walk away from sermons or from the Bible with something real practical, right? You want something you can sink your teeth into, you can go home saying, yeah, you know, I can apply this to my life. Is there anything more intensely practical than this? If you wonder, I love to care more about the things of eternity. The things of God. The things of eternity. The solution is really practical. Give money to God. And your heart will follow. And your faith will as well. I'll tell you, friends. You've got to know I'm preaching this to myself. I am by nature a hoarder. All right, I've got things. I've got... You know, for years I had a box of medicine, you know, which, which dated back, you know, 10 years. I still have throat lozenges, you know, Ricola throat lozenges, you know, from like the, the late 90s. All right? I mean, they're just sitting there. I'm like, no, 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 I can still open them. I mean, the wrapping is stuck to them. And you can't even, oh, this is fine. I can just chew through it. You know, I, I hoard things. Where's my heart? Ugh. Be generous for yourself, for your faith. But also be generous for yourself, for your long-term investment portfolio. Who here has one, by the way? Long-term, raise your hand. Long-term investment portfolio, it's okay. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to rebuke you publicly. In fact, it's, technically, it's, it's, it's the law to have one, right? If you're employed here, okay, man, you ha- you're supposed to have a pension. Investment portfolio. Might be very limited, but it's there. Jesus gives you the ultimate legal insider trading tip for your investment portfolio, and it's this Earth's currency will become worthless when Jesus returns or when you die, whichever comes first. Storing up more than is needed is not only unholy. It's just stupid. When we, when we, and I'm not talking about, you know, I understand that things need to put away, but when we start to pad that bank account, pad it, pad it, and pad it. It's not just unholy. Jesus says it's stupid. 
What are you doing? This very day, God could demand your life. He tells the one man who just fills his storehouse with wealth and hoards it. This very day, I could come and claim your life. It's just dumb. A.W. Tozer, a man I respect tremendously, once said this, As base a thing as money often is, it yet, listen to this, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary or a church actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. I love this line. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Now I know a number of you have candidly shared with me that you moved to Cayman to build up the old reserves. Right? To make some money, to build up the bank account. I know perhaps it's for security, perhaps it's for travel, for flexibility. And I know that Cayman's dollars is very strong. To, to many of the places we come from, if you're not from here. And while there's nothing inherently wrong, I don't want to communicate, there's nothing inherently wrong with you making money, you are on dangerous ground when a chief goal of being anywhere centers around money. Where is your heart? Jesus says it can't be both with God and with money. So I want to encourage us Start by trusting God with the minimum. Start by trusting God with the minimum. For two reasons. That's what we see, first of all, in this passage. When he says full tithe in verse 10, that literally means the tenth part. The full tenth part. Now that wasn't all that the Israelites were asked to give. That's what they asked to regularly give. The tenth part covered food and other necessities for the priests, and every three years went towards those not self-sufficient, i.e. the poor. With all the various festivals and, and miscellaneous covenant obligations to give, the estimate, the best estimate I've read, is that the average Israelite was basically to give 21.7% of their income. God's very specific. He doesn't say it that way. Puts different things in different places. 21.7%. But, and I'm not, I'm not saying you need to like get out the calculator with your check this week and do that. But God actually is wisely, wisely lovingly patient with his pe- people. And he challenges them to what? Give a tenth part. He knows that's going to be radical for them. The other reason to start there is in the wisdom of those who do give generously. In the Church Universal. Well, in seminary, uh, I did some research at polling folks who love to give. They had a gift of giving or they just love to give. And I'm talking about folks here who give 30, 50, even 80% back to God. Yeah. God, it was interesting, God would continue to provide for these people in extraordinary ways. Sometimes above what they gave. But you know what was, what was common each of them had in common. Virtually all of them had in common. All started by giving that tenth part. Almost all of them started by giving that tenth part. And they felt stretched to do that as a discipline in their lives. That's where they started. 
And that erupted into this life of generosity. Now some of us hear that and are like, well that's not encouraging to me. I don't want to start with the 10th part and you know, 50%. I don't want that to happen. That's not the point. The point is God released and he freed them to give. Freed them of that idol in their life. I want to close with this. I, uh, my boys and I, Mason and Gage and I, uh, compiled a list that I want to share with you this morning of some things we observed. I'm going to read this to you. Two boats, a vacuum cleaner, a Dell Dimension 4100 desktop with Pentium 2 processor, a tractor, two Yamaha boat engines, and a lovely sliding glass door with ornate cast iron interlaying. Where do we find these things? We took a trip to the dump this week. We took a trip to the dump. By the way, a frightening road to drive down. I don't know if you have, you kind of look down that road if you go on Esterly Tibbetts. Uh, it is frightening. If I get a flat tire on that road, man, I, I'm going to lose my child rearing privileges for two weeks. In fact, here's a picture of the boys. Can I show a picture? There they are. Next to, next to an old Burger King sign, home of the Whopper. We went to the dump. We saw these things, good things. I explained to the boys, the people save up what they do have and they spend even what they don't have on these things, guys. Then they get something else. Is that very smart? If you could spend money on something that would last forever, guys, would you? Yeah. I went on to explain to them, it's not just people's stuff. But because it's their stuff, a lot of people's hearts really end up at the dump. Because that's where their treasure was. Uh, singer, you know, I'm Tony Bennett, once sang, I left my heart in San Francisco. My fear for many of us, at the end of our lives, our song will be, I left my heart at the dump. Will that be you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I confess maybe more than any sermon preached this year, Lord, this is a sermon you directed towards me. Father, I have robbed you. I have, frankly, I've robbed you. When I do give, I'm often a grudging giver. But Father, you have given us, through your word, these great reasons to give. The supreme one being, you are stubbornly generous for us. Not just through being with us, but being with us through Christ. That you sent Jesus, you gave your son generously. Not when we finally had turned our lives around. Not when we finally had started to make progress. But while we were your enemies, when we had rebelled against you, you gave Jesus so that we could know you forever. And that you could generously give us every good thing now and eternally with you. Jesus, another reason is we don't want people to get up here preaching. We don't want leadership, Lord, to ever feel like they have to aim to appease people, Lord. We want to speak truth. Sometimes that's hard truth. Finally, Lord, help us give. Even for ourselves, Lord. Selfishness is not, is not just doing something for ourselves. It's, selfishness is doing something for ourselves when it costs somebody else something. But God has limitless resources. So it's not selfish 
to want to feed our faith or feed our long-term investment portfolio, our bank account in heaven, our treasures in heaven. In fact, you encourage us to do that. One of the simplest ways we can do that is just by letting go and giving of what we have, Lord. It's hard. But help us be generous towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.